Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Episode 3, the Elixir track of the hallway community. Uh, you're not recording? Oh, now I am. You, you asked if we were started, but then you weren't recording? Now I am. I was confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's alright, we'll just have a couple minutes of Chris and I talking to emptiness. We'll put it at the beginning, it'll be alright. That's fine. Got it. We're all here now. I was worried because I had to go downstairs and I had to go press my coffee. Mm-hmm. I had to go. Uh, I was rocking the AeroPress today. Oh, nice! So I had to run downstairs and then I was like pressing and I was looking at the time and I was like, "I'm going to be late." So I was pressing faster and then coffee started spraying everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, AeroPress is wonderful, though. I like. Is those. it? Yeah, I really pretty, like it. Yeah, awesome. I I also um, have used it to make a cup of. Uh, cold brew coffee. Oh, interesting. Mm. How did that work out? It, it worked really well. So I set it up like you were going to press it and then took like a liter plastic bottle, cut the bottom of it off and poked a single pinhole in the lid of it, <laughs> put ice in there and then let it slowly drip through oh, the coffee nice. for a few as the ice melts. And it turned out fantastic. How long did that take? A long time. <laughs> <laughs> that totally out, worth know. it totally oh, worth it. it it was it was it was pretty worth it that's some uh that's some that's some true artisanal shit right there like <laughs> this hand rolled bespoke I, I, found things coffee right? oh my god i was hard up i just needed some iced coffee <laughs> <laughs> i carry an arrow press with me on whenever i travel uh-huh. like basically every it just lives in my i have i have two and one of them lives in my suitcase and yeah, I take it with me everywhere. And then I'll also bring like a little hand grinder and some fresh beans. And then I grind coffee in my hotel room. Oh my and God. I heat water using like the, the the little like coffee maker they have in the hotel room. And then I make an AeroPress. And it's my it's my bulwark against madness of like being away from home. <laughs> like that is really it's like funny. my one creature comfort that I have everywhere. They're fantastic for camping too. They pack small. Mm-hmm. It's easy to go. And you can get like metal filters for them. So like typically they have a, a paper filter that you like, yeah. press the coffee through. That's what but I. But they have. have they make metal filters, and that's what I use. So they're super easy to clean up and whatever. Uh, I like paper filters because I don't like the environment. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> as long as you're clear about that. Yeah, I just I just throw throw everything away. So is there any interesting feedback before we kind of get into this episode about property testing from last time that y'all heard? Uh, I didn't get any f- feedback about okay. property testing. Okay. Um, I did have Michala Muscala. <laughs> Terrible with his name. He even sent me uh, and said that Google Translate knows how to say his name. <laughs> That's awesome. Pretty well. Let me see. Uh, maybe I can play it and maybe it'll get picked up. You'll have to tell me if it gets picked up. Oh, no, it played into my headphones. Mikawa Muscala. I I'm probably messing it up, but uh, he sent me some feedback saying that the Google Summer of Code oh, yeah. picked up five Elixir projects. That's awesome. One of them is around the dialyzer stuff that we talked about, about it being hard to read the air messages unless you're really comfortable with dialyzer itself or with um, Erlang syntax. Uh, so so that's pretty cool. We, we have a link in the show notes to the Beam Community Google Summer of Code page, so that'll be out there for everybody. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, Google Summer of Code focuses on bringing students into open source software development. That's how it works? I I believe that's my understanding of it. I think they get a stipend or something and it acts as a summer internship for them. Cool. And then, yeah, they have, they typically, I think, pair them up with mentors as well Mm -hmm. from the, the, you know, community or from, you know, sort of experts in that field or whatever so that they can kind of get I guess so they can get, you know, production sort of real world expertise, but also doing these like important sort of research projects or experiments. There's some really cool stuff for, uh, for the the entire sort of beam community, as they call it, mm-hmm. uh, coming up. Um, yeah, the dialyzer thing is cool. So it looks like it's going to be unifying the different projects that are out there mm-hmm. to support dialyzer and Elixir. And it's going to have better errors and that kind of stuff. There's one for... TensorFlow, oh, uh, like adding TensorFlow bindings, mm-hmm. which could be super cool. That would be really interesting. Um, 
that is very relevant to, to my interests and some stuff that I've got going on. Mm-hmm. Some other benchmarking things. Yeah. The, oh, uh, they're adding bindings to Elixir for Barrel DB. Have other of y'all looked at Barrel no, DB? What's that? I have not. It's a database. I'm going to get all this wrong. Uh, I think it's like a document store and it's it's written in Erlang. And so you can use it directly from like Beam stuff. Um, so it's a kind of a, it seems like it's a bit of a replacement um, for like Nisha. If that's, if you have that kind of use case and you don't want to like dip out of the Beam mm-hmm. um, to store data. Uh, so that could be really, really cool. I'm using their RocksDB library that they have in Raft. Um, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the one we're using. Yeah, it looks like they have other, other interesting projects in here though. Um, so yeah, that, that could be, that could be, that could be some really exciting stuff coming down the line. That's yeah, take, awesome. take a look through those there. There's a lot to read in there, so I don't think we can go through all of it, but that's pretty cool. It's also an awesome way to get more folks exposed to and interested in the Elixir community. So that's rad. I was also reading over, uh, Fred, uh, Abers, um, it's about the guarantees blog post earlier, just cause there was a conversation on Twitter and it came up and just freaking everything Fred works on like his writing to me, it, it has this quality about it that it always feels evergreen. Like every time I read these things, I've probably read this, this blog post, like 20 times, you know what I mean? I just keep, I always go back to it and I reference this stuff and it's not a super, you know, long blog post or anything, but there's so much in here that is so important and his ways, his way of explaining things is so succinct and clear and i don't know he just has his writing style is so good i just i love everything he's he's worked on i'm like i'm like an unabashed fanboy of all <laughs> yeah. the things that he like works on yeah it's it's fantastic his his and uh evan miller's stuff evan miller's blog posts they, they just have that sort of i can go back to those and read those again and they always feel fresh and they feel like they're funny and, and engaging and really technically interesting and i don't know they're great I don't know, Evans, if you could put a link to his blog in the show notes, that'd be cool. Or to both blogs, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We definitely should link to Fred's. I mean, we've talked about him, I think, on every show so far. Totally. Maybe we should change our tagline from the Elixir track of the hallway community to Fred Fanboys. <laughs> I, I, that seems like a... a I, would, I would sign up for that, that, that title, for sure. I've <laughs> uh, put some choice uh, Evan Miller blog posts in here that are both super funny and really, really interesting and, you know, insightful. Nice. You've pretty much filled in the rest of my day. So on, <laughs> on, thir- on Thursdays, uh, I do no client work and I spend that time to learn and, and read stuff and catch up. Well, that's the intention. Uh, half the time I end up doing accounting instead. <laughs> so I will spend the rest of my day looking at that. One of the interesting things that I saw this week that I thought might be fitting for us to talk about. I don't know if you have anything else to say. We don't have to go straight to this, but in the Elixir forum, Platforma Tech, Platforma Tech, Platforma Tech. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I always want to remove the A after the T. So it's like platform attack. Anyway, they have a contest for people to put in 280 characters about what was the biggest challenge you had when adopting Elixir. And I know we're talking, so I would like just hear what, what you guys have gone through. But, you know, 280 characters and speaking. So should we put a constraint on this? <laughs> well, and what do you think the context, right? Like the biggest challenge in what? There's so many different contexts that that statement could be taken in, right? Like, right. Like is the biggest challenge getting your employer to let you use it? Because that's easily been the biggest challenge I've had with Elixir is getting people to let me actually use it. And the question behind that being why, right? Like, is it language specific? Is it because they think it's hard to hire, right? Is it because... What are the risks associated with that? Or what, what, I'd be curious to hear why, right? Anna and I worked together at Carbon 5 a while ago before I, before I left uh, to go do other things. And at Carbon 5, it's tricky to like... Carbon 5 is a consultancy. I should explain that. <laughs> and they work with clients in the Bay Area and in LA and other cities. And one of the things that I think makes them a good consultancy and makes them... And one of the ways they provide a lot of value to their clients is that they don't force technology on their clients. So a lot of times the client can dictate 
what technology we're going to use. And if you're a new startup or you don't, you have like limited funds or you're an established company who's already got, you know, a large uh, application in Java or something else, you know, you're not looking to move to do something else. What you're looking for is like people to come in and help you. Mm-hmm. And there's very few companies that are just getting started. Like there's very few startups, I would say, that are looking for help and also wanting to do something that isn't well-established just because... Hiring, et cetera, right? Like... Well, I mean, I think it can even affect your, you know, for a lot of companies, they look at it and and it can, in their minds, it can affect their ability to get acquired. Mm -hmm. If we've got some fringe thing, we're that much less likely to be able to flip this company if we need to, et cetera, et cetera. And like, there's a billion Rails people out there in the world ready to uh, work on your Rails app, you know, to some degree. That can be hard to find too. I know that I I did Ruby and, and Rails for a long time and still do a little bit. And there are companies around here that I, I worked for a large hospital conglomerate. I don't want to necessarily say their name, but they only wanted to do Java projects because Java developers in the area are kind of a dime a dozen. They're everywhere and they're cheap. You can get a senior Java developer for half the price of a senior Ruby developer pretty easily. Do you think that's like a fair, do you think that's a, am I being uh, unfair in that assessment, Anna? Which, which assessment? Of just like the nature of early stage companies and like not necessarily wanting always to, to try out something that's super fringe or that they haven't heard of. Like it has to be proven to some degree before they're willing to. I think it depends. I mean, I think it depends on the company, right? Like we've had a couple of projects that have been pretty gung ho about, no, we actually actually have either come in and been like, no, we want to use Elixir. Or once we are like, hey, we could do this in Elixir, they sound game um, and are excited about it. But yeah, I think, you know, a lot of companies, you know, they're trying to mitigate risk. And so whether it's a cost thing or a recruiting thing, or there's just less because it's a younger community, there's less kind of established around it, even though Erlang is, you know, much older. Um, I think that's true. I think that's a valid assessment. And so I think my, my question is always like, well, how do we as participants in the Elixir community or, you know, when you when you're, you know, how do we kind of help shift that? Right. Like Ben Marks did a really good talk. He actually came to Carbon 5 uh, a couple of years ago. I don't remember, a while ago. And I think he's given it before about how they did it at Bleacher Report, right? Where they just took a tiny piece of their code base and kind of started with a small sliver in Elixir and then started building bigger and bigger to really mitigate risk until they'd rewritten a large portion of their application, if not most of it, into Elixir, right? Like, where do you start? How do you start if, whether it's like convincing people, engaging people, getting buy-in, there's like so many different aspects that make it challenging. So I want to, I have so many questions about that and I like they tie into other things I've been wanting to, to talk about with um, your work with Elixir Bridge mm-hmm. as well. But I want to, I want to ask a question real quick before we go into that, which is like, do you, has, has the, we can cut that out. All right. Start over. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. That's going in. <laughs> so, wait, is this the show? Hang it on. all stays. Yeah. It all stays. Since, since you said last time. So you, you said in the Elixir forums that I did light editing. I'm going to do light editing for you. <laughs> no, I meant you do. Well, what was your question, Chris? What were you trying to say? Have you seen the, have people become more interested in Elixir like recently? Like, have you seen like an uptick in clients that are more willing or like excited about doing Elixir work than before? I think there's an uptick. I think it's slower, right? Like, I think there are more people that are interested and I think it's continuing to grow. But like any community, right? I think it takes time. I definitely think it's growing. I probably get an email every week or two about somebody asking me if I have time to do work on their Elixir project or to start one. I find that a lot of them are Phoenix-based or nerves-based. It's like I'm either doing hardware or I'm doing a website and not much in between. That's been pretty interesting to watch that grow in the last year and i wasn't sure at first if it was just me getting out there more and and people seeing what i do so they're reaching out and saying oh you're doing elixir now hey let's do some elixir but it seems to be growing faster well and i think people are also seeing success stories right like pinterest had some success bleach report has had a lot of success and missing out blanking on other companies right now that have had a lot of success 
Discord is the, I just think Discord's the other like really big one. Discord has had a lot of success, right? And so like in the community, at least in San Francisco, I hear more and more about people, you know, Adroll, who's done a lot of Erlang, is building new stuff in Elixir now. And, you know, I, I, I hear a lot about people starting to engage more. And I, I think you can watch the conference circuit too and get a little feeling for all of that. There's more and more conferences that I'm seeing, regional conferences and meetups. That's true. And it, I mean, even with Elixir Bridge, like people see it's still small, it's still growing, um, but people seem really excited about it. The people that come are really excited to learn and really engaged. And like some of them have done some Elixir, some of them are just like have heard about it and are, you know, curious to learn about it. Uh, but at the end of every workshop, everyone just seems like really psyched to continue diving in deeper. And so there's definitely interest, not just in the community already, but from people outside the community who want to learn more and get more involved. This kind of like segues nicely into the into the stuff I was interested about with uh, Elixir Bridge. Um, actually, just in case anyone's not super clear on what Elixir Bridge is, can you explain it? Yeah, so Elixir Bridge kind of grew out. I had done a lot of work with an organization called Rails Bridge, which started in 2009. Two women, Sarah Allen and Sarah May, um, retired being kind of the only women in their tech meetups and their tech world, tech kind of conference circuit, et cetera. And they started RailsBridge because Rails was, it still is, but it was really popular at the time. Um, they were like, let's get 20 women to a room and teach them Ruby on Rails. And it was free. And they ended up getting 60 women and doing it over and over again. And that was in 2009 and it's still going. So the inspiration kind of came out of that for Elixir Bridge, which is very similar, where we put on free workshops for underrepresented folks in tech uh, on the weekends to help them learn uh, Elixir and Phoenix and try and make it as accessible as possible. So we provide childcare, food, et cetera. Awesome. So uh, are the majority of people who come to Elixir Bridge, because I know I've helped out like with one Rails Bridge or one or two Rails Bridges before, just like because of Carbon 5. And I know a lot of people who are com- who were coming to Rails Bridge were between some level of like, I've never programmed ever. Like, I don't know what a shell is. I don't know what an editor looks like. You know, all these things like so totally, totally fresh, totally new to I've done a little bit of programming or maybe I've been to RailsBridge before or, you know, that sort of that sort of thing. So it was was somewhere uh, in that range. Is the is Elixir Bridge like the same demographic or do you find like more people already have more experience or like what is the case there? Yeah. So actually we have we specifically for our current set of workshops, we've been doing this for about a year and a half now, almost two years. We actually ask that people have a little bit of programming experience. Um, and we've seen people who have a little bit. We've seen a lot of people who are developers in other languages. So it kind of runs from people who have some program, a little bit of programming experience already, are familiar with like data types and the terminal, et cetera, to people who are developers, um, just maybe don't know Elixir. We haven't actually gone back yet, and this is something I want to do in this coming year, and backfill that curriculum to a place where it would be really friendly for people who are like, this is my first programming language. That would just take some more writing of curriculum that we haven't done yet. I mean, it's not like writing curriculum is like super hard. You should be able to like super fast. <laughs> this is why I don't teach <laughs> as a consultancy. <laughs> but I think people, I mean, I think it, and it's something I want to do. It just, it is just take, it takes time as you just in, kind of indicated um, to write that. Rails Bridge has an amazing like intro. And the question also becomes like, from a reality standpoint, like I think I want to do it because I think I totally think it can be somebody's first language and we can create that curriculum. It just depends on the goals of that individual, right? Like if somebody was like, I'm going to be a developer, I want to be a developer and making a transition. What's the first language I learn? I'm trying to get a job, like from a realistic perspective. I don't know that Elixir Bridge might be the best place for that, right? Given we've talked about how like currently the community is growing but opportunities are somewhat limited but i still think that i want that to be available to people who are interested in learning and who it could be their first language that makes total sense i i was I mean, that's something I, I was wondering about is what are the ramifications of of saying like taking someone who does want to get a job programming and then saying oh let's like teach you elixir it it almost feels like you know you you could potentially I don't know. It's hard to say because like the, the skills, the skills that you would learn could really translate really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I think program learning how to program in any language is you, those skills translate to like a, a host of other languages and, and other things. But I don't know, like if, if your goal is to get a job. Yeah. Like there's not a ton out there right now. Yeah. And, you know, not are yet. you setting somebody up for 
Whereas like if you teach them JavaScript or you teach them Ruby, like, and your goal or Java, and you're like, your goal is to get a job. Well, as long as that, that person is going to interview for, for those languages, like they'll have no shortage of companies that they can go exactly. interview at. And I think a lot of it is that even, even not just Elixir, but the number of jobs that are object oriented versus functional. So if you have one object-oriented language, there there's more jobs available, even if you are hopping from, like, let's say you started learning Ruby and there's a Java job. You can probably get that job. And a lot of the ideas that you have when you're new to programming transfer very well from like Ruby to Java, but maybe not so much if you learn functional and then you're trying to go for an OO job and you've never done any of that. Not that you can't write functional code in those languages, but interviewers might not view you the same way. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's it's always interesting, right? And, you know, Elixir Bridge, the goal is to try and create, like the Elixir community, I think, is really trying and everyone's kind of heart and heads are in the right place. Like they want it to be a really welcoming, really diverse community and making sure that people do have access to learning this thing if they want to, but just making sure that you're not setting them up for something that wouldn't be beneficial to them, right? Totally. Yeah, I think it I think that's like incredibly admirable, like, you know, to have like the resources available if people want to take those opportunities. And I do have friends who's like this is one of their first languages, maybe not their first first, but it's like this is the thing that they really got into immediately after learning some JavaScript or something like that. And they're loving it and they managed to get a job doing it. So there is like there's an anecdotal point of data for you. But yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting time. One of the challenges I, I've always battled with in my head is one of the things that attracted me to Elixir and one of the things that got me hooked immediately was the way it solved so many problems I had coming from other languages in, in terms of fault tolerance and supervision and concurrency and these sorts of things. And I don't, you know, you only know what you know and you can't like live someone else's life. You can only just have empathy and I don't know that I would have been as attracted to Elixir had I not come in with the experiences of fighting with these things and seeing the benefits of of it. Um, So I've always wondered about that, too. Like, is it as readily apparent to someone who doesn't have some experience already? I mean, I don't know. I have friends who also have learned it pretty early on. I think also just the more that you dive into it and the better understanding you get of what's possible with it, even if it's not apparent initially becomes apparent pretty quickly, even if you haven't had previous experiences, just it's so powerful. But I think that being said, like coming from other places and having had previous experiences also really lends itself well to understanding what's possible, right, with Elixir. Do you really need to appreciate the let it fail attitude and know why in order to to, to succeed? No. Or in any of the other elixir paradigms that that we as programmers who have been around a while really appreciate having that solves some of the problems we've been to I, I don't know that that's a big deal for someone coming in brand new no but i think yeah exactly can, can i make something like that's the biggest yeah, yeah and does it do what i want and how do i do it and you know elixir happens to make a lot of those things really easy right and i i, I totally get that um yeah, I think I'm not I don't mean to say that like people couldn't experience those things or, or wouldn't get it. I always worry about the immediacy aspect of programming, of teaching someone new programming. Like my I always want there to be that immediate feedback that they can get so that, you know, like I, I, I don't know, I think I think for better or for worse, um, however you feel about Rails, Rails is like given tons of people jobs. And people who like never would have had jobs or never would have been interested in programming uh, before simply because it gave them that sense of immediacy like it did for me. Like I, you know, I I learned Rails uh, when I was doing a bunch of like Java stuff. And Rails was one of the things that made me love programming because I could build things. All of a sudden I, I had access. I didn't need to like take a month to design my like data model in this, you know, Java thing or whatever, I could just start building things. And I think that like, so that's always really stuck out to me as a, as a a goal of a, of teaching, maybe not as a, as a language goal or as like a framework goal. um, But as a teaching goal, like you, I've always thought that like you really, and I've only thought this because it's, it's how I learn, Uh, but wanting that immediacy. And I always have wondered how much, 
you know, if you have to go through these other steps to build a thing in Elixir that you don't understand why you need immediately, are you just delaying the gratification somebody gets or no? And that's, and this is me being totally naive. Like, this is an honest question. Like, I don't, I don't know. I think I totally agree with you. Part of what makes, you know, part of what made Railsbridge really successful, et cetera, is that like part of it is teaching. Part of it is also allowing people to see that it's something that they can do and that it's possible um, and that they're capable of doing it. And so that ability to build something quickly and see that you have done that and get that gratification is actually really important. But I don't think it can't be done with Elixir. It does take a little bit more time. Like with Elixir Bridge, for example, it's not just like Rails new, here's your app. But in the course of a day, we've built something. Like we've built a mix app that they can that does something, right? And they can see it. So I don't. I think it's still there. It's a little bit different. When you start teaching, do you have a standard project or app that you start on for Elixir Ridge? Yes. Yeah. So we have two curriculum: one for uh, Phoenix, a Phoenix app, and then one for just building a mix app, which is pretty simple. And it you know uses a gen server, makes a call to an API, and retrieves some data. But yeah, we have we have the, we use the curriculum that we've written for every workshop we're trying to write a couple more more advanced curriculum now but yeah we already have in mind what we're building and how we're doing it and um, how we're going about explaining it so whenever you start on that project or, or start teaching what is the the main difference that you see between someone who has maybe some little programming experience to someone who has none so we actually haven't taught it yet to somebody who has none. We need to backfill that curriculum because there's, we start with some assumptions, right? Like assumptions that people know, like, like data structures are data types and have played around with the terminal. And I think to actually teach it to somebody who has never programmed before, we need to go back and backfill that portion of like general programming concepts in order to kind of proceed and build, build the application. Along with that, what do you think... I mean, what do you see? I mean, and everybody can answer this uh, either for themselves or for other people. Honestly, like this is going to this sounds like a humble brag. It's not meant to be. But like I've been, you know, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I looked since I learned Elixir. And there's still stuff I have to look up in those sorts of things. But I don't remember anymore what my biggest hurdles were. So I'm curious to see what y'all's answers to that would be from a technical perspective, you know, less than a you know, I can't get my company to do this or I can't get people on board and how do I market this? And it could be you or it could be, you know, the people that you're working with. I mean, I think a lot of the initial things that see, at least when I see, I see it when I'm teaching and these were probably things that I felt myself starting. A lot of the things that are, you know, really powerful things in Elixir but are unfamiliar in other OO paradigms, like, you know, the fact that the assignment isn't really a thing and like, how does that actually work? It seems really simple, but what's actually happening or pattern matching at, at first, right? When you're first explaining it, it takes a little bit and then people catch on. Some of the OTP behaviors, right? Like when we're talking about gen server and how we explain how that actually works. And I think once people get those initial kind of foundation, some of the really powerful foundational concepts in Elixir, they can move forward pretty quickly, um, but some of those take a little bit of time is what I see generally. What is the the concept that seems to be the hardest? Um, when we're teaching, it's a good question. Pattern matching always takes a little bit of explanation. And I think people initially see it and they're like, okay, I kind of get it, but I don't see why it's powerful until we go into more in-depth examples. <clears throat> Start explaining like multi-class functions and we actually start using that inside of an application and then they're like, oh, I see, this makes a lot of sense. So I think a lot of it is like understanding the concepts, but then not seeing why and how you would actually use them. And then some of the OTP behavior, like gen servers and just explaining that call, callback process and how that actually works. I mean, to be fair, the OTP stuff is complicated. Like, I still have to go look up. What did you just, why did you just message me? Uh, <laughs> because it says less than a minute at the top I just of Zoom. Upgraded, okay, this, this I am 100% cutting out, but I just upgraded the, uh, I upgraded the Zoom call, so it shouldn't, it it's, shouldn't end. Oh, okay, it still it, says it. It, it, it says it, so that's why I, oh, there it went. Yeah, see, it's gone, Keithley. We were back. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Apparently I wasn't, actually, I'm not actually logged into Zoom over here. I don't know, I don't understand what's going on right now. Anyway, <laughs> good thing I messaged you. Yeah, I know. That was nice. I'm glad you did that. So the thing I was thinking about is like, I have to go look up the documentation for supervisors every single time I use them. I have to re-look it up 
and and remember what are these exact functions that I need to call? Because you do it, I don't know, I, I do it so infrequently where I typically have that stuff built and then I don't think about it that often anymore until I need to go back and do it again. Um, especially if you're trying to do something that's non-standard. So I think it's fair to have to go back and, and try to, it, it, I think it's fair for it to take a while to understand exactly what's going on with all that stuff. Oh, totally. I mean, with any of it, I mean, I think in general, when you're learning something new, it's fair that it takes time to kind of wrap your mind around these new paradigms. Um, and some of them are really complex. I'm curious for y'all now that you've been doing Elixir for a while, is there, are there things that still remain really challenging? I have a lot of uh, OO left in me, and and sometimes I, I notice some of that coming out, but what stops that a lot is testing, because testing was the actually the hardest thing coming from OO languages. Like Java, I had injection frameworks, so everything had a constructor where I injected all the collaborators, and, and that stuff made it really easy to test without a whole lot of work, or in Ruby where you can just overwrite some function or mock it pretty easily uh, due to the the way the object model works. And I had a much harder time figuring out exactly how to test things and servers and name servers. And I have this obsession with, I always want to put async true in my tests, which, which leads to a lot of headache because it, it may always be possible, but it's, it's not always simple uh, or should even happen <laughs> but but i'm like oh but it'll be faster and my test suite will run faster and i won't have to wait for it <laughs> so so i attempt that and and still even after a few years doing it that that still hits me mm-hmm. for me it's it's typically framework specific things that i just don't know i, I make kind of a habit of not committing framework specific things to memory just because i don't think it's I can always go look up documentation and I don't think it's very relevant for my overall career so I just don't try to like hold that stuff in my head so there's like framework specific things that I keep that I always get caught up on now that are challenging but just generally to elixir I think the big thing that I struggle with still is uh what to do with error handling it's the thing that I'm just not very good at uh, because I think it's 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 still so counterintuitive to me uh, the idea of just like letting things crash all the time that's still a thing that I'm not the best at and I get it wrong a lot uh, so I've tried to I, I'm still struggling with learning how to do that more learning how to think more about my supervision and learning how to allow myself to be comfortable with things crashing more often and and not letting errors propagate throughout my system and instead just you know killing the process where it is and letting it restart I'm trying to be better about sort of fail first mentality i guess i see that a lot with the people i work with too so since i'm doing embedded a lot of the people that i work with have been c developers forever or and they are very defensive developers. So there will be a lot of code just to make sure that this doesn't crash, even though it might be not not the best solution to it. And I'm, I'm not saying that they should just let it crash, but they spend a whole lot of time on each function being very defensive with everything coming in, going out, like what's going on. And it doesn't always turn out well. One of the things I've been doing as a sort of, I don't know that I would advise anyone else does this, uh, but it's been a useful experience for me to go through it, which is to stop using with basically everywhere. And I was a big, I really, really like with, I've used, and I think I've overused it a lot in, in my sort of like day-to-day programming. But I don't know, I think something that I've been coming to groups with is that with allows you, or with rather, uh, with tricks you into allowing your exceptions and your errors to propagate outside of your function and they like get downstream of your thing. And then, then something else blows up because of that. And I've actually been, every time I've been thinking about writing a with, I actually just don't do that. And then I do explicit pattern matches on the good case, you know, so you just match on, okay, whatever. And then you just crash. Otherwise you get a bad pattern match error if something fails. And doing that has forced me to think differently about how I actually handle errors and how I handle crashes. And I think overall, that's been like a really good learning device. Like, again, like I don't, I don't, I would not recommend anybody does this 
<laughs> or like goes and puts it into their into their and in, in, into, into production that way. But that's a thing that's really helped me think differently about supervision and really push that stuff to the forefront. I, this is just a comment of the width. It sounds like you and I use width in very different ways. My width I use for recovery only. So if I the the width like I see a lot of people using it and they match on the good case. Um, I actually match on the bad case and then have the do of the width do the whatever default should be if I end up in a bad case. And then I let it return whatever the good case is because it doesn't match and it returns whatever it doesn't match, right? So like if I go to pull something out of the database, I'll match against error and try to pull the thing out of the database. And then if it's not there, I might create some default data to return inside the do. And so my width statements are two or three lines at most. And I don't have multiple clauses in the width very often. That's that's interesting. That's I really I need to I need to go play with that idea. I haven't thought about that. I learned it from Sasha. <laughs> reading his code. Code reading is another wonderful way to learn. Mm-hmm. And and also stressful. So that was one of the, that's one of the things that I struggle with. You were talking about libraries is libraries that have callbacks. So I, I'm working with prop check right now. When I first started looking at a lot of the prop check stuff, it has these post conditions and preconditions and all these functions that don't seem to be called anywhere in the file. And so as I'm reading through it, it's like, well, what the heck? I, I can't follow this code. I don't know what's going on. And it's because it's most of it is implemented in callbacks. And there's a lot of that in Elixir. And I think that that can be a big struggle for somebody starting out new. It makes like code reading ends up with me looking up all these libraries and finding out what their callbacks are almost every time. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like stepping back a little bit overall, what you're, since we're talking about kind of challenges with the language itself and like jobs and hiring, et cetera, but from both of y'all's perspective to the community as a whole, do you have any thoughts around like, what are some of the interesting challenges that the community is currently facing? I've been thinking a lot about how to about how the community grows and adapts and brings in new people. And it seems like we're pretty it seems like we're pretty well into the early adopter stage to the point where early adopters are already leaving. And that's okay. Uh, That's that's actually a good thing in some ways, because it indicates like some amount of growth and early adopters leave sort of by definition of being early adopters. Like they adopt things and then they move on. And it seems like we're starting to attract more pragmatists, which is also a healthy thing because pragmatists make up a much larger segment of the population. And they're also who will end up driving other pragmatists to adopt the language. You know, like that's a marketing thing, right? Like, like people like to do comparisons between two products and that's how they make their decisions by and large from like a marketing perspective. And the fact that pragmatists are are coming to the language means that they're able to do that comparison now and it's well enough established. I'm still interested in what that looks like going forward. What sort of things are we as a community going to lean into and how are we going to attract more people in order to continue that growth. And and part of it's that I just don't know what that market really wants because I am sort of by definition an early adopter as well. Like I, I don't know, I came to the language early and I've managed to s- stick around. So maybe I'm not maybe maybe I'm not exactly an early adopter, but you know, I'm will I don't know. I maybe I, my personality is such that I'm probably willing to take a few more risks than other people, which is fine. So I'm interested to know as the community grows what what it is that pragmatists are sort of looking for. So that, you know, we can provide those sorts of solutions. And I'm not, I actually just don't know what that is, which is why I'm glad that I'm not a part of the team that has to make those sorts of decisions. Like I don't run a conference. I don't, you know, do these big things. So I don't have to be involved in figuring out how to make all that stuff work. And thank goodness, because I would probably be terrible at it. And I'm also super interested in figuring out how do we bring a different set of people to the table who we don't have right now and what can we do be doing better to cater to a totally different demographic of, of people and that and that that harkens back to my question earlier about like and I'm I'm actually really I'm encouraged by the fact that my the things that I fear would be the case of like oh if somebody new comes to comes to elixir they're going to be turned off by how much extra stuff they have to go through in order to get from a to b so i'm i'm encouraged that your experience has been really positive with that because that's a way to attract a brand new demographic of people to programming and to elixir and to like bring these new alternative ideas which is really good no i agree i think you know a lot of what you just everything you just said is really valid and i have a lot of thoughts but 
I think that one of the things that I've seen, especially with attracting new people, and I think this is what the Rails community did really successfully as far as individuals, right, is accessibility, like really making it accessible. The fact that like this is what that's one of the reasons I want to do Elixir Bridge is how do we take this this language that's really powerful and you can do a lot of things and make sure that it's accessible and people can feel like they understand it and can get wrap their heads around it enough that they can go home or go on and like keep working with it themselves, right? I think accessibility is really huge and thinking about, okay, well, what does that mean? And I think the Elixir community has already done, there's more that we can do, but it started a good place as far as like documentation and the Slack seems to be pretty active and people do seem to be pretty responsive. How do we make it more accessible? How do we make it more welcoming? So people are new and are coming in because it's not just, I mean, for the pragmatist, it is, I think, partially understanding how this language can be useful for what they are doing technically. But also, you know, as being part of a community, how, what does that feel like? Do people actually want to stay? And what makes a community, you know, what makes a community a place? Like, again, harkening back to, like, I think the Rails community, Ruby community, do this really well. What actually makes people want to stay and participate and continue developing the language? And it's not just individuals, right? Like, I, having companies that are supportive, or like, I wouldn't be able to do Elixir Bridge if it wasn't for Carbon 5 supporting Elixir Bridge, right? It would just be too much of an overhead. So it's not just individuals, right? How do we as an entire community, including the companies that are using this language and are excited about it, kind of make it more accessible so that the community does grow is my biggest thought. What are, what we can cut this part out if you want to be honest, (laughs) if you want to be too real, Uh, like what are some, I will do that for Anna, but not for you, Chris. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. That's fair. What are things that we could be doing better as a community about uh, accessibility rather, you know, whether it's better documentation, better learning materials, or frankly, you know, like funding or, you know, those sorts of things. Like what, what are things that we could be doing as a community better? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I wonder, right? Like, I'm only one person trying to do this thing in one particular way with Elixir Bridge. But I'm curious, like, how I would have to to answer that question well, I would actually have to have a better idea of the other ventures that are happening, right? Like, I saw a need and I was like, I'm going to do this thing this way because I think this could work. But as far as, like, I don't know, like, conferences, my knowledge is currently limited of, like, how much outreach goes out during some of the conferences as far as trying to bring in new folks or folks that are underrepresented, like thinking about, I mean, even again, I hate to continue to do this like paradigm, but going back to like the Ruby and Rails community, I only keep going back because they've been so successfully, like what have they done? Like, why do people want to stay? What has made that so accessible? I think part of it is time, right? Mm -hmm. But part of it is making that extra effort. And it sounds like small things that aren't really small, right? Like making sure people feel welcome in a space is really important. And it's things that, you know, I take really seriously, like actually having a code of conduct or actually having like childcare available so people who have kids can attend your thing, right? If that's possible. And there, there's there's so many things that I think appear small but aren't um, that people overlook. And I mean, two of, the, two of those things being like one of the things that we offer is childcare, right? Because that's important at Elixir Ridge code of conduct we take very seriously because that's important and not just you know having one right but really giving the people agency to do something about it if something does happen and making sure that people that participate in events know who to talk to and what they can do if they feel uncomfortable in any way um, i think those are two things that are really important i don't always see those things happen but it's it's, it's a progress it's like a work in progress right we're all growing we're all learning um, so how can we do better to make sure that everybody that goes to an event feels welcome and safe right and I think that in and of itself really helps build community. People can go to something and feel like they're welcome and feel like they um, are comfortable and safe, um, et cetera. I think that's totally that's totally fair. <clears throat> and it seems like there is something, I will say there are specific instances in the community where I, I really feel really close to a lot of people. Uh, and, there's, and there's places in the community that I just don't. And... And a lot of that has to do with different conferences and some of it's just due to, you know, I know more people at these places or whatever when I'm at these different types of events. But I do think that I'm, I'm dodging around and trying not to say anything like. Well, because it's a complicated topic, right? Like, how do you ensure that we continue to make things accessible, right? And part of it is having honest conversations about what's currently not working, right? And how we make it better. And sometimes those conversations are not an easy thing to have, depending on who you're talking to. I think that you're also going to have some splits in the community are, are fairly natural and, and okay. If you have someone who does a lot of nerves development and never really touches Phoenix, 
they're probably not going to be that into that community. And if there is a Phoenix only conference, they're probably not going to go to it. Like uh, the Rails community or the Ruby community, you have Ruby conference and Rails conference. And a lot of times they're very different crowds. And and this, yeah, totally. I think that's okay. But you, sh- you should never feel shut out. Exactly. Like that's my thing. Like there are definitely going to be splits and people have different interests and that's totally fine. But I think if somebody wants to participate in a particular community, ensuring that they feel welcome, assuming they're not doing anything to make, you know, other people in the community feel, you know, uncomfortable or they're being, you know, they themselves are not being a good citizen in that community, so to speak. So one thing that I always think back to, because it, it, it really affected me when I joined the Elixir community, I went to a Ruby conference sort of towards the end of my time doing a lot of Rails and a lot of Ruby. Um, and it was, it's it was like, Long past the the heyday, as you, if you will, of the Ruby community, and it's like it was like a smaller venue or whatever. And when I was there, it dawned on me that everybody in there knew each other, was already friends, was already like well established. They'd been like hanging out, you know. That was their community for years. Clearly, years. They these, these this was their community, you know, and they all hung out in IRC together in like private channels and those sorts of things. And that experience made me feel super, super left out of the overall community. And it really made that entire conference like kind of miserable to be at. And I'm not, I don't, I don't want to, that's the right way to say this. I am fully aware of my privilege when I walk in at a door anywhere, right? I look like every other person there, you know, I'm like fairly comfortable being around, being around human beings and having conversations more or less. But, and so it's, you know, along with that, it's like, if that was already the case and someone already didn't feel, didn't have those privileges or like those, those extra bits of agency or whatever, walking into a situation that also was like that, I couldn't imagine that. Like it was miserable for me. And I have always really worried about that happening to the Elixir community. And I really hope it doesn't happen. Like I, I we're all going, I mean, there's, and that's the thing is like, I, I know I've been part of part of that problem if, if, if there is one in the Elixir community, because I do have friends and I go up and, you know, we were all at Elixir days and we were all hanging out together. And, you know, I spent my time talking with people that I consider to be friends and that I talk to online on a regular basis. And I really hope that I don't want to diminish that. I think that's important for people, but I also want to encourage people to realize that there's always going to be someone new and there's going to be someone who wants to break in and wants to join that community. And I hope that we all have empathy for that, no matter what that person looks like or, or who that person is or, or whatever, that we can like, you know, remember what it was like when, when we all joined and and help to bring those people into the fold and engage them and talk to them about stuff and all those sorts of things. Um, and that's hard. That's super hard to do. But, you know, it's it's a it's in a super important part of the process. No, I totally agree. I would also argue that it's not super hard to do. Um, It's just keeping it in mind, right? And making sure that you think about it and making that effort. And I think when you do have comfort in a community and when you do have acceptance in a community and when you are somebody who is visible and knows a lot of people, it's that much more important if you are if you are serious about the community being accessible and you're serious about welcoming new people, it's that much more important to just keep in mind. And not all the time. Everybody has limited bandwidth, right? But keeping it in mind and being willing, if you're serious about it, to make that extra effort to be welcoming to people who are new and reaching out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of my talk that I gave a couple or Elixir last year, I was talking about community building. At the end of my talk, I was like, I talked, I, you know, I kind of left everybody with a call to action and I was saying, you know, think about who are the next 10 people you want to share that you're excited about Elixir Bridge or Elixir with, right? Period. And what does that community look like? And does that community look like that, what you want the Elixir community to look like? And if not, who are the 10 people you should be reaching out to and actually also actively be reaching out to those people, right? Not necessarily always waiting for them to come in. Think about who are people who I think would be interested in this, who we want to welcome, right? And also making that effort. So I think that's important as well. The The hardest thing that I've run into to make this effort, and, and I actually ran into this at Elixir Days with Anna, is that I thought it, I'd never met Anna. I know that she's she's been around the community, but I f- found Anna at one of the after events, and 
I bought her a drink and, and just wanted to sit down and talk to her about her talk and what was going on. But then the people that I already knew came up and started to talk to me. And I turned around and talked to them and then like didn't talk to Anna at all. <laughs> so, and it, so I think in making that effort, you also need to make sure that if the people who do know you come up, include them in with the new person that yes. you just met. Even if that new person you just met is well known in the community, it doesn't matter. Include the people that you know in with the new people you're meeting. Yes. Because it's really easy to get sucked into a conversation with the people you know. Yes. That's not inclusive. And I wanted to say too, I actually I appreciate what you just said, Anna, which is that it's actually not hard. You just actually have to remember to do it. And that's that's a good thing to remember. Uh, just because, yeah, it's something I don't always remember to do. That's an important, important thing to remember. So I'll take that as a, <laughs> I'll take that as an action item to be better about. Because uh, I think you're, you're you're spot on. We're starting to run pretty long yeah, here. I think we, and I think people up. need to get going. Yep. So, um, any last thoughts before we before we sign off? I think I really appreciate having this conversation. I think it's an important conversation to be having. Uh, not just talking about how amazing Elixir is from a technical standpoint. But what are the challenges as we grow the community? Because that's also a really big piece. So I hope that people have found it interesting um, and can have some takeaways, at least, of what, how they can think about their involvement um, and what might, they might be able to do. Cool. Do you all have any thoughts? I just want to try to figure out how to get my local Elixir community to reach out to people outside of it and draw more people into it. And I, I'm, I'm actually glad that you guys made me think about my interaction with Anna at, at uh, Elixir Days there because I think that that happens to me more often than not because I do know a lot of the people. So then when new people come in, even though I I go and attempt to start a conversation with them, sometimes I get drawn away pretty quickly. And then I think that probably makes them feel more left out maybe than if I hadn't said much of anything. So I'm going to make a concentrated effort to get more people there and, and talk to them more. Nice. Cool. The only other thing I would add is, you know, this is still Elixir is still really young and the community is still really young. It's still it's still forming. What I would encourage everybody to do is one to just realize that you have an impact on this community now. You just have to get involved and you have to help shape it to be what you want it to be. And whether that's from a technical perspective or from a community perspective. And I think if we have that uh, extra empathy for other people and we strive to build a community that we want to build and it, then that can happen. Like you can have an impact on this still. Um, it's not so big and it's not so cemented into what it will be forever or whatever. You know, it's, it's like things are really plastic still. I would just encourage everybody to get involved, even if it seems like a small thing, probably has a big impact on someone's life. Totally. Cool. All right. All right. Cool, y'all. Thanks, y'all. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Later. Bye.